Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen here again. This week, we're going to be celebrating one of Snooker's oldest tournaments. It's just begun, of course, the UK Championship, first held in 1977 and uh, got underway as we record this yesterday. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, we're now, of course, for the first time seeing it on TV on Eurosport, the first round. Um, before we get to that, we must just reflect on, I guess, uh, Judd Trump's victory on Sunday. Uh, third straight final against Ronnie O'Sullivan, same score in each uh, one of the Northern Ireland Opens. Probably not as good a match, but I do think, in a way, with these two, it doesn't matter. And the dynamic, I, I felt, as I said it during the day, was interesting, you know, the battle for supremacy, world number one, world champion. So even though it maybe wasn't quite as good a match as the other two, it was still compelling viewing. Yeah, it was. There were bursts of the sort of heavy scoring that we've seen in the final of this the last couple of years towards the end of both sessions. They traded centuries at the end of the first and then the last few frames were really, really good. As good a finish as you'll see in any final, really. But a lot of the rest of it was very patchy, a lot of very unexpected misses. And I think it just reflected how much it meant to both of them because they've not actually played each other very often over Mm. the last year or two. So when they do meet now, particularly after O'Sullivan, effectively taking Trump's world title a few months ago. It means a huge amount to both of them. And I think that was reflected in a lot of what we saw. O'Sullivan, in many ways, it was very reminiscent of the way he played at the Crucible because in a lot of the matches there, he was missing a lot of very unexpected balls, but he was showing a new tendency to just be able to hang in there and hang in there and form at the end. He did find his form at the end again this time, but he had left himself just that bit too much to do. And you have to think if that red had dropped in the middle instead of hitting both jaws and staying over the pocket, every chance he would have made it eight all and who knows what might have happened then. But remarkable in the current situation when the game is so competitive and there are so many really good players to see the same two players in the final of any tournament three seasons in a row. And not just that, but the fact that it's a home nations event where you've got best of sevens for the first four rounds. So you're open to surprises. Really surprising to see that happen in the modern age. And well, I mean, what words can you find to describe the fact that it was exactly the same score three years in a row? Amazing stuff. I thought Trump made a great break and uh, I, I agree with what you said. Um, and I should explain this right from the off. Okay. This 
episode is going to be entirely about the UK Championship. We've had so many emails come in. We're actually going to do them all in an episode next week. So if you've sent an email in, it won't be read out on this podcast. It'll be read out next week in an email special. Having said that, I do just want to read this one out because it is pertinent to the final. It's from Jason Phillips. He says he's talking about Ronnie O'Sullivan. Okay, he's playing on at the end of frames from hopeless positions. He says, my view is no problems with Ronnie playing on. In fact, having the last say in a frame and ending it by potting the black must have a positive subconscious boost to your mental state even when losing. If there was a crowd present, you could argue Ronnie was providing value for money. But value for money isn't the same as entertainment. My theory on this is actually it's just his kind of new thing. I think all through his career, I mean, it started actually when he started playing left-handed. It just became a thing that he did. He deci- he's decided to do it for the whole tournament. Whether he'll continue into the UK Championship, he said he would. He's a man of changeable moods. He may never, ever do it again. I will say this, OK, he's, he's within his rights to do that. It's not against the rules. If everyone did this, though, in every frame of snooker on television, I think the sport would have problems because we'd have long periods of time where basically there was nothing meaningful happening. Well, my theory is that he was listening to the podcast the last couple of weeks when we were talking about players playing on needing improbable numbers of snookers, and he was just desperate to get a mention on it this week. So there you go, Ronnie. We've, we've taken care of that. Just on that point, actually, did you get the chance to ask Joe Johnson about that frame against Brian Rouswell where he needed something like 22, 23 snookers? Well, I got the chance, but I forgot. <laughs> you, you just, <laughs> okay. you just reminded me. I'll see it on right. this. I'm going to see a lot of Joe in the next few weeks. I, I will Absolutely. ask him, yeah. I think the point is, like, there was one frame, and it's actually I mentioned last week um, or a couple of weeks ago when John Spencer got the six snookers against Jimmy White. It's yeah. actually, it actually identical. There was a frame against Trump where Ronnie was... 56 behind with one red on, needed six snookers. He actually got two. And you think then with the free ball, actually, he's fought suddenly 48 behind. It doesn't seem so unreasonable. But then he potted the red. So actually, he wasn't interested in getting snookers. He was interested in table time. He said he hadn't practised. He wanted table time. Listen, it's his new thing. Personally, I doubt it will continue that much longer. And also, I think we, we probably, most people would agree, if opponents start doing this against him on a regular basis, I don't think he's going to like it very much, is he? Well... Um, I was going to say, you know, Mark Selby famously got under O'Sullivan's skin for so long. We saw that flip to the other way at the Crucible. Mm. If Selby wants to get under his skin the next time they play, he should do it because that would really wind Ronnie up if he if he was to do it. So someone's going to use it as a tactic against O'Sullivan if he continues it for too long. And you've got to think Selby would be the favourite. But, I mean, it just sums up Ronnie and how long he's been around and how many different sides of him we've seen. This is a man who once conceded a frame on television, 25 points in front. Now he's playing on when he needs eight snookers. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think, though, having said all of that, it, it, it was sort of linked to the general discipline he had all week. He was very businesslike um, and seemed to genuinely enjoy himself, which I think is a good thing anyway. Uh, that was that. Well done to Judge Trump. Before we, we get into our topic, we're not so big that we can't um, say congratulations to the new snooker podcast. Uh, Nick mm. Metcalf, Phil Haig from the Metro, two journalists who love their snooker. They've launched a podcast called Talking Snooker. And uh, I listened to the first one. There's some good points made, actually, because, of course, uh, Nick and Phil, they, yeah, they're snooker fans, but they also cover other sports. So maybe compared to certainly me, they have a wider sort of perception of how snooker is perceived. I work exclusively in snooker. I'm very proud of that. I'm a snooker fan. I don't make any apologies for it. They have maybe a sort of wider view compared to some of the other sports they cover. Phil made a good point, actually. He said that for casual sports fans, the UK Championship, may actually be the first snooker they've watched since the World Championship. You know, mm. not everybody not everybody watches every tournament. We may be on this podcast, we're so niche, you know, it's for diehard snooker fans. Not everyone is that. Anyway, uh, I wish them all the best, unless, of course, they become really successful, in which case we will work to undermine them. 
Yes. <laughs> with, 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 with our own continued excellence. i got yes. to say about that, actually. There's so much rubbish in the world nowadays, and, you know, a lot of it is coming from the media. There's just so much ill-informed, uh, you know, self-promoting, just, well, nonsense, basically, uh, circulating in the media. You know, it's great to see something like that. I mean, I don't actually know Phil, but bizarrely, I've never actually met him, but I know Nick pretty well. And I know what a big snooker fan he is. And I know Phil is a big snooker fan as well. So just to have that, just to have two guys like that who are just big into snooker sitting there talking in an informed way, um, you know, is is just it's, it's a great thing to have. That's the sort of thing that podcasts give you the potential to do. People have been saying, of course, that two guys who know a lot about the game talking about snooker is something that's been called for in the podcast world for a long time. And that Nick and Phil have finally fulfilled that need because I can't think of anyone else who's been doing that. I think you've over-egged that a little bit. Yeah. You know, we, we, we wish them well, that's it. Yeah, we do, yes. Yeah. I know it is It is great to see it, absolutely. No, no, maybe they're we'll, good. Maybe yeah. we'll team up. Maybe we'll team up for a sort of, you know, it's kind of like that episode where Simpsons met Family Guy and they did an episode together. Maybe maybe the four of us would do a podcast together at some stage. I imagine that will happen at some point. Yeah. Right, okay, let's get on with the, the main topic, which, of course, is the UK Championship. Um, I'm worth saying, you know, for maybe new, younger listeners or people who are maybe new to snooker, of course, it's not always been a ranking event. It was originally for, I think, essentially British residents and passport holders, because, of course, the first winner was Patsy Fagan from the Republic of Ireland. It wasn't a ranking event until 1984. We should say as well, of course, it's another innovation by the late Mike Watterson. You know, we talk about Mike Watterson taking the, the World Championship. The Crucible is probably what he's best known for. But in those days, he was someone who understood that snooker was going places and he at the BBC screen. I actually look back at the BBC coverage of the first uh, UK Championship and it was all entirely uh, of the final in Grandstand. It was highlights of the final in Grandstand. That was it. The next year, next two years actually, they started showing nightly highlights programmes. 1980 was the first year they started to show it sort of live in the afternoons and then the coverage of course built as the 80s went on. Now here's the thing, I was thinking about this, I'm sure I'm right about this and you would know guaranteed. I'm sure at one point it was, re it was renamed the UK Open. Yeah, definitely. Um, you see, when it started out and when it was the UK Championship, it was kind of getting stretched a bit. I mean, Bill Werbenick played in some of the early years. And I mean, he's 100 percent Canadian or was 100 percent Canadian. But on the grounds that he was living in the UK, he got to play in it. Now, surely pretty much all the snooker players were living in the UK. So I'm not really well, sure how to, that had actually worked. You had to. Yeah. And you pretty much still do now. So I thought that was a bit of a strange one. Then they decided, look, this is too big a thing to be excluding players from it. So let's let everyone in, make it a ranking event. It was sponsored by Coral at the time. Initially, it was definitely reported that it was just going to be called the Coral Open. Now, imagine if that had happened, there'd be no UK and there'd be no triple crown for you to talk about, Dave. But Dave. Yeah. Anyway, um, yes, it did certainly become known as the Coral UK Open. Or, well, at some point anyway, maybe it was when tenants became the sponsors. I think at one point it was maybe even known as the UK Open Championship. And then for a while it was just being called the UK, the Storm Seal UK or whatever. I think it was in 91 then uh, when the current trophy was first played for that it definitely started being called the UK Championship and has continued to be ever since. The thing I loved about it, it was just one of those lovely little quirks. David Vine, for some reason, always insisted on calling yeah. it the United Kingdom Championship, That's right. which was, I don't know I don't know why he did it, and I don't well, know why I liked because, it so much. Well, because he was old school. Vine. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, he is, as far as he's concerned, it's the United Kingdom. Absolutely. And one of the great strengths of the tournament, and by the way, we've already said before, you know, we know the frames have been cut from best in 17. We know the final used to be 
best of 31, all of that. We're not going to go on about that again. That we, Everyone knows that. It's still a great event. But I think one of the strengths of it, actually, is it's always been in the same slot in the calendar. And you associate it with, you know, it's getting colder, it's getting darker, it's getting towards Christmas. But here we've got a week, or in this case, two weeks, of the UK Championship. I think if they moved it in the calendar, I think that's actually worse than moving venues. You know, it was at Preston, uh, it went to Bournemouth, it went to Telford, York. If you're watching on TV, it doesn't actually matter where it is. But the slot in the calendar is a great strength, I think. Yeah, very much so. We said that when we were talking about the World Doubles the other week. I think that was a big part of its appeal for the few years, that it was always the last event before Christmas. And the UK in those days tended to become just before it. And they moved it even closer to Christmas. I think the year Sean Murphy won it, it finished on about the 21st of December or something like that. But yes, I do agree that's part of it. It wouldn't feel the same at all if you had it in March or something. Just the same as the Masters wouldn't feel the same if it was in October. Mm, absolutely. Okay, well, obviously, uh, you know, sort of age uh, plays a part in memories. So if you're in your mm. 20s, you're not going to remember the 80s. I don't remember the early uh, editions. And even if, uh, even if I was old enough, as I've already said, um, you know, there wasn't much TV coverage. The first, we're going to trade sort of memories. It's not a top 10 or anything like that. Mm. We're just going to, I'll bring one up, we'll chat, you bring one up, we'll chat. First one, I don't actually remember this at the time, but I've subsequently gone back and looked at it. And there's one moment in it that I think everyone knows about. It was a 1985 final between Steve Davis and Willie Thorne. Now, 1985 was clearly a big year on the BBC. They had the, the Black Ball final, which, you know, the most watched snooker moment in history on, on British television. The Grand Prix final uh, was also Davis-Taylor. That went to a decider. And then they end up with this uh, final between Steve Davis and Willie Thorne. Willie Thorne leading 13-8, clearing up for 14-8, misses, uh, blew off the spot. That was actually shown live. I actually looked back again because on the Radio Times website, you could see all the schedules. Mm. Um, they came on air quarter past seven till about half past eight, 8.35. So that moment, obviously, first frame was live and it's on YouTube. They go to the studio. John Spencer immediately identifies it could be a potential, you know, big moment. Obviously, at the time, they couldn't know how big it was. But I think what was interesting about the final, obviously, Davis came back and won. Big disappointment for Willie. But that shouldn't obscure how well Willie Thorne played in that final. I mean, he outplayed Davis essentially for three sessions. Unfortunately for him, <laughs> it was a four-session match. Um, but he played the sort of snooker you would see today. He had three centuries. He had a lot of other big breaks. He had uh, nine half centuries and three centuries in a final. OK, it's best of 31. He played great. The problem is, of course, in championship snooker, top-level snooker, it's also about temperament. And Steve Davis had the best temperament of them all. And he sensed, you know, a weakness and went for it. Yeah, and it makes you wonder if Willie had won that final, which he really should have done, what more might he have gone on to achieve? Because it wasn't just out of nowhere that he got to the UK final. He was you know, a really good player around that time. He'd won his one-ranking title earlier in the year. He actually got to the British Open final a few months later and played Steve in that. But I think what happened to him, to win the UK championship would have been absolutely colossal, a massive step up from his win in the Mercantile Credit Classic. There's one for James Cook in his uh, Snooker Scene podcast, bingo game um and i just think it probably bothered him really for the rest of his career after that a bit like mike hallett with the masters i don't think he ever really got over that and you think if if willie had won the uk that time and not had that huge disappointment to carry around with him he may have actually achieved a lot more in the game and won a lot more tournaments he remained a very good player for some time after that but might have been even better if he'd finished it out at that time just on the tv coverage so they were on live for about an hour and 20 minutes and then they came off and they came back on at about 10 to 11 for the rest of it. So, you know, I mean, Martin Gould, when I interviewed him, 
I didn't pick up on it because we weren't talking about that. But he said, you know, in the old days, you could watch it all day long live. Actually, you couldn't. Mm. You mm. couldn't, actually. It, it was when they gave it to you. It was piecemeal. And you, you had to come back. Obviously, there was less, you know, there was sort of fewer ways of finding out who'd won and it being spoiled. You weren't going to find out online. There was no online. But even so, you had to wait until they came back on. Um, anyway, that was uh, 1985. Of course, Davis uh, went on winning it for the next uh, two years, six titles in all. Uh, go on, then you you go next. Well, I, I wasn't actually aware we were going to do it in this format, so I'm not prepared any. We're going to have oh. to go by the seat of the pants here. Um, 87, then. Uh, that was a really good final as well, actually. Steve Davis and Jimmy White. Don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the one that uh, Steve won 16-14 in the end. <coughs> Turned out to be his last UK title. <coughs> oh, excuse me. The thing I'll always remember about that, uh, though, was the semi-final where Joe Johnson, who we were talking about earlier, mm. had a brilliant chance of a maximum. And I think there'd only been four in tournament play at that time. So it would have been headline news if he'd done it. And He had a great chance. He really should have actually finished it out, Joe. He missed the pink. And I remember him saying afterwards, uh, when I potted the green, I was in the Bahamas. When I potted <laughs> the blue, all I could see was green pound notes. I think it was well, 50,000 pounds. Yeah, it was. It? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, But then I remember he took it in great spirit because I think he potted the opening red in the next frame and said to the crowd, I'll do it this time, mm-hmm. which incidentally he definitely didn't. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what a great final it was between Davis and White. And I suppose in a way it was symbolic of White's experience in the big four session finals. Yes, he did win one in 92, um, when he beat John Parrott to win the UK Championship, which he regards as the biggest uh, success of his career. But it was just always the case, wasn't it, with Jimmy? That I mean, he played really, really well in that final. And at one point, it looked like he was probably the stronger of the two and might actually win it. But just in the end, he always got outlasted, didn't he, in those big, long finals. And uh, I mean, Steve was at the absolute peak of his powers there. It was the fourth year in a row he'd won the UK, the sixth time in all. But as it turned out, he never won it again. He made five centuries in the final, Davis. Mm-hmm. I was just, just looking at the scores. Yeah, uh, and that's the thing about... I mean, there were fewer centuries in general, but the top players, people like Steve Davis, Jimmy, you know, they were they were heavy scores. Uh, it, I think, again, it's a bit like the Willie Thorne final. You know, if it goes close, despite what happened with Dennis Taylor and indeed with Alex Higgins in 83, you would still at that point have fancied Davis because he was just used to winning. He was just used to winning tournaments and he sort of made that event his own, didn't he? But of course, that, as you say, that was his last... Success. He got to a final again, of course, 2005, incredibly. Mm. Uh, of course, got to a couple more against Henry, yeah. which, which we'll come on to, I'm sure. But 2005, got to the final against Ding. But 1988, we're not sort of doing this chronologically, although that seems to be how it's sort of panning out. Uh, 1988 was a very special year, wasn't it? Because uh, Stephen Hendry had come along at 19 years of age, the sort of new hot shot in the game, had won a couple of tournaments already. In the final, he was up against Doug Mountjoy. No one expected Mountjoy to get there. He'd won the title 10 years earlier, had been a top player, was in decline, was 46 years of age, going down the rankings. And at that age, you know, it's assumed you just carry on. He'd gone to see Frank Callan, the renowned coach, who restored his faith in his game, his confidence. And he won the tournament. And it was uh, still, I mean, I remember watching it very clearly, still one of the great sort of moments of the whole history of the tournament. Yeah, and Hendry had destroyed Davis in the semi-final as well. So it looked all set up for him to go and win it in the final. But Mountjoy just played really, really well. I mean, it was it was pretty even, actually, sort of around halfway through the final. And then he just gradually started pulling away. And Hendry did come back a little bit towards the end. But, I mean, it had gone to 16, um, no, 15-6, I think it was. 
So Henry needed to win the last 10 frames. Now, of course, he managed to do that in another uh, big four-session final a few years later. He did get a few back, but, uh, you know, he always fancied Mountjoy was going to get over the line. Uh, but, it, you know, it wasn't a case of grinding him down, as you might think. Mountjoy actually scored very heavily um, in that final, uh, made four centuries in it. So uh, Well, he made, a, a, he, yeah, well, he, sorry, he made three in a row, didn't he? And that that's was right. Only the second time that had been done, the first time was Davis in the international final just a couple of months earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that just showed you how well he played. And, you know, he then really underlined it a few months late, a few weeks later by winning the next ranking event, the Mercantile. And winning back-to-back ranking tournaments mm. in those days was something that really only Steve Davis did. But, yeah, just you know, an incredible story. And people were so pleased for Mountjoy, just a pure snooker man. Uh, and, look, everyone knew Henry was going to win loads of UK titles. I remember uh, Mountjoy actually saying afterwards he's got another 20 years to come back here and win this. Well, he did go on winning it for you know many times over the next 20 years. But yeah, just a great standout moment, uh, you know, a great story for someone to win it at that age. And you know, the likes of Henry had led that new brigade that had come through and guys like Mountjoy and his generation hadn't been able to keep up. But on that day, back in 1988, or over that weekend in 1988, Mountjoy managed to get the better of him that time. And uh, we all remember it well. Here's the thing though, he was 46 and considered a veteran. Ronnie O'Sullivan, the world champion, <laughs> goes in, will be turned 45 during this year's yes. event. And we don't yeah. think of him as a veteran because, of course, he never dipped from the, from the top level. Um, but anyway, he's a special. And uh, well, why don't, we, why don't we continue the O'Sullivan chat by talking about 93? Because, of course, you know, he was 17. <laughs> he was 17 years of age, uh, beat Stephen Hendry in the final. This was the first final that was best of 19. You know, we talk about the best of 31s. This is this year, I think it's the 44th UK championship there are only actually 13 best of 31 finals so even though we we sort of associate the tournament with that actually the weren't you know it wasn't sort of 25 years of it they cut the final um for whatever reason but even so you've still <laughs> you've still got to stand up he's playing the best player in the game Stephen Hendry he's 17 what a way to announce yourself on the stage I think the reason was perhaps there have been a few fairly one-sided finals over the previous few years. And you can still get that in best of 19, but obviously it's much less likely. The good thing about it, the sort of byproduct was that it meant the semi-finals were then played in a one-table situation, which prior to that they'd been played simultaneously across two tables. So you got to see them both well. But O'Sullivan really built towards it as the week went on. He beat Doherty in the last 16. Played some really good stuff then to beat Davis, which was still a huge scalp at the time in the quarterfinals. Was given a bit of difficulty by Darren Morgan in the semis, but that was what Morgan did. He made it difficult for you. But in the end, O'Sullivan won it quite comfortably. And then, I mean, to be 17 years of age and come through and beat Stephen Hendry, who, you know, you think back to the world final a few months earlier, the way he had dominated Jimmy White. It was a magnificent achievement. And so many of the greats have done this. It, it wasn't as if O'Sullivan had been knocking on the door, getting to lots of semifinals and finals. We all knew about his great potential even before he'd turned pro. But when he did have the big breakthrough at the UK in 93, it was a little bit out of the blue. Because, as I say, there hadn't been a sort of succession of big results leading up to it. It was very similar with players like John Higgins, Mark Williams as well. When they did win their first title, it came a little bit uh, unexpectedly that it would happen at that time. Um, and, of course, they played in another final, Henry and O'Sullivan, just a few weeks later, the European Open. I remember O'Sullivan being asked after a semi-final, well, you beat him in the UK final. What do you think is going to happen here? Oh, I think I'm going to beat him again, which was wonderful confidence. Uh, but it didn't actually turn out that way from because Henry did beat him. But, you know, if you're talking about the greatest ever UK moment, I, I think that would have to be up there. And I think a lot of people would regard it as the big one just because of what it led to 
and uh, the era that it's set in train for O'Sullivan. And as you say, he's still going 27 years later. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very a very different um, scenario, but in a way similar to Joe, Joe Johnson winning the World Championship. He didn't just win it. He beat, you know, the top player in the game, Steve Davis. Yeah. I think that's what people remember about Joe winning. He beat Steve. And for O'Sullivan, you know, like you say, the draw did not open up for him in any way. You know, he's ended up having to beat Hendry in the final. Um, and yeah, extraordinary. And of course, immediately launched him as a star. His sort of private life as well became public knowledge. That was hard for him to, I'm sure, to deal with at that age. But, you know, he's still going, isn't he? He's, he's, I mean, he's actually, we'll make, maybe talk about this later. Before the Northern Ireland Open, he was my tip for the UK Championship and, and remains the case. Um, I just think because some of the players who've started the season, their form is starting to dip a little bit. Trump accepted. Um, obviously, he's playing great. And maybe Ronnie's will, will go up a bit. Anyway, we might talk about that later. Um, but, of course, in between Mountjoy and Ronnie, we had a couple of Davis-Hendry finals. Um, and the second one, I guess, is the one we all remember, 1990. 30 years ago now, incredibly. I know, um, I know. The battle, we talk about, I talked about O'Sullivan Trump, the battle for supremacy at the Northern Ireland Open, but this really was, wasn't it? Because Hendry had become world champion because he'd beaten Davis the year before in the UK, but Davis was still a player who you think possibly could wrest it back from him, wasn't to be. Yeah, I mean, I have a slightly different take on that final mm. to most people. I agree with everything you have said there, but people say that was the moment the baton was passed. Now, I think the way I would see it, Hendry sort of underlined how the baton had passed in winning that final. To me, the big moment had actually been when they'd played each other in the UK final the year before that. Hendry had played really well. He'd beaten them 16-12. I think you might look back and say that actually the way the match went, it was a little more comfortable than that scoreline would indicate. And then, so by the time they met in that 1990 final, Hendry was the world number one. He was the world champion. Uh, He'd won the Masters as well in between for the second year in a row. So he was very much the top player at that time. I think once he'd won the UK in 89, you know, the, the old cliche, you don't see many poor bookies. Well, after that, they started making him favourite for every tournament. Now, Davis had been favourite for everything for almost a decade uh, prior to that. So I think that, for me, was the more significant moment. And 1990, I think, was the more memorable final for sure. I mean, we think of Henry having the big lead early on, then Davis coming back, getting within a frame of beating him. And the way Henry held on and managed to finish it out, finish it out in the end was, was so impressive. We all still talk about that incredible blue he potted, you know, the Really, if he'd missed it, it was probably all over and Davis was going to win. But I look back and I, I, this, this is how I think I saw it at the time, 30 years ago. I saw that more as Steve. Well, Hendry underlining, in a sense, how much he had taken over from Steve as the number one player. And yet at the same time, Steve, by coming so close to beating him over four sessions, just saw that he was around. And he was still very capable at the highest level and that he was going to be a contender to go on winning tournaments for the next few years. And he did actually quite frequently, not on the regular basis he had done before, continue winning tournaments uh, over the next few years. It was only about a year or so later he actually beat Henry in a really memorable final uh, to the Mercantile. So, yeah, I mean, it was a great final, um, probably better than one in 89. But I would just have a slightly different take on where it stands, actually, in the sort of story of the Henry-Davis rivalry at that time. I guess the question is, though, like, what would it have done to Henry had he lost yeah. a, a close final to Davis? It made no difference. I suspect he probably wouldn't with him. But it would have been a high-profile defeat to his biggest rival. You know, we talk about the Henry-White years, but Davis was the player Henry was chasing. He was chasing his records. He modelled himself on him as a professional. If Davis had won 16-14, or even in a decider... Would that have knocked Henry back 
Again, we will never know. My feeling is probably not. He went on to win the title, of course, five times. Could have played in it this year uh, with his comeback, but that comeback uh, yet to materialise. I, I guess, uh, you know, that's a memorable moment for him. But in terms of performance, I, I suppose 94 with, against Ken um, has got a, got a rate as one of the great performances in any final, hasn't it? Seven centuries. Yeah, absolutely amazing. The, the, the funny thing about it was, I mean, Ken actually did really well to keep up with him. Even after all those centuries, he was still in contention. It was only when Henry stopped making the centuries that he actually pulled clear towards the end of it. Um, the thing about it is the that might very well never have happened because in the semi-final, Henry went very close to getting beaten. I think he won on the final pink. It certainly went to a decider against Peter Ebden. It's a big deal for Ken to be in that final. He'd obviously been a tournament winner. Uh, but he hadn't been in anything as big as the UK final. And he went in with every reason to believe he could win because he'd beaten Henry in the final of the Scottish Masters only a few months earlier, which you know was a very prestigious event and obviously was a particularly big deal to Henry, given where he was from. But yeah, what can you say about the way he played? Magnificent performance. And you know, when people talk, as you know, I'm always a great defender of Henry in the greatest ever debate. And when people say about, oh, the standard has gone up so much now. Well, I mean, look at that 94 final and the way Henry played in it. He was so dominant uh, in those frames and you know, piling on century after century. It's the sort of thing if O'Sullivan didn't, did it now, people would say, this just underlines how he's the greatest ever. So yeah, great performance from him back in 94. And started actually a run of disappointments for Ken in UK finals because he was in three of them and in three different ways, really lost them all. Well, I was going to ask you, um, I, I I think, because the thing about the UK, Mountjoy possibly accepted because he wasn't expected, but there aren't really any shock winners when you look at the role of honour. It's all Hall of Famers. It's all top players. It's, the World Championships have more surprises, yeah. I, I think. Is Ken the best player not to win it? Well, you see, this is like the debate we had a few months ago, as in, you know, if you're talking about the best player never to win the World Championship, if you're talking about the World Championship record, it's got to be Jimmy. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about their overall you know, contribution, shall yeah. we say, to the game, then Ding has to be in that conversation as well, even though his world record isn't so great. Certainly, I, I suppose, if, if you're looking in the history of the UK Championship in terms of players who've done winning it, well, just talking off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone else who's been in three finals and not won it. And one of those was in a decider, of course. Go on, yeah. Well, he came. Cl- that's the point. He came close. I mean, you think you think of like Ray Ray and Dennis Taylor, Cliff Thorburn. They never reached a UK final. They're all world champions. Yeah. Never reached a UK final. Ken, you know, at that time was winning tournaments. He, he was world champion, etc. Um, I think he possibly is the best player not to win it. Well, when we did our all-time top ten a few months ago, I think the only player who was in that who didn't win the UK would have been Reardon. Yeah. And you can't really include him in that conversation because obviously the UK wasn't around mm. for most of his heyday. So, yeah, and just thinking about the players who've just missed out on that 10. Um, I mean, they're all players who've won the UK. So, yeah, let's give Ken that, you know. It's a <laughs> bit, um, you were saying, what was the Oscars analogy you drew last week? Martin about, Scorsese. Yeah, exactly. Departed, yeah. Departed, yeah. So, so let's, let's call Ken the Martin Scorsese of, uh, you, know, he did, he, you know, we'll give him this towards the end of his career. Best player not to win the UK. Well, another one on my list, actually, we'll stay with Ken. Um, it was... Uh, Again, being outplayed. I mean, he obviously lost to Mark Williams 10-9, but 2001, mm. Ronnie O'Sullivan beat him 10-1, and it, it was just a complete demolition job. It really was. And, you know, Ken, as we saw with the Hendry match, you know, could, can kind of compete even when he's scoring heavily. But I would say O'Sullivan was unplayable that day. Yeah, I mean, Ken didn't play well 
Uh, that is the thing. You know, he missed some easy balls early on. And of course, it's the classic story, isn't it? You allow Ronnie to get a bit of rhythm up and, you know, you don't see him for the rest of the day. Uh, so you do have to remember that about it. I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, I've never experienced it and never will, but I would imagine there's nothing like it for a snooker player. The year you win your first world championship. And of course, that's where O'Sullivan was at that time. And so often we've seen it, haven't we? The year a player wins their first world, they then go on to win the UK towards the end of the year. And I got the sense with O'Sullivan, he actually really wanted to do it uh, that year to sort of underline what he'd achieved in Sheffield a few months earlier. It was a really surreal moment for me, actually, at the end of the final, because the, the press conference, was there wasn't a top table. There was just sort of two chairs at the top. And I was uh, doing a radio interview. So I was the one sitting up the top, um, kind of leading the press conference, really. So I found myself in this really surreal situation. Me on one side, Ronnie on the other, and me basically conducting an interview with the UK Championship trophy in between. I mean, I really felt like David Vine that night. Mm. But, uh, of course, it finished very early, so I seem to remember we, uh, we, we had a lot of time to spend in the bar afterwards. But, yeah, very dominant performance. There haven't been many of those in UK finals. Stephen Maguire was also a 10-1 winner uh, in his UK final. Uh, but, yeah, O'Sullivan was magnificent that day. But, like I say, Ken didn't play particularly well in the final. He came back 12 months later to York. Because the one in 2001, I think that was the first one at York, wasn't it? And then the following year, they came back there and uh, Ken ran Mark Williams very, very close. And for some reason, there was a bit of needle between them at the time. This time, it was very different, went the distance. But again, Doherty just lost out. I, I feel I'm monopolising uh, this by picking all the choices. So do you want to go next? To be honest, I would have picked all the same ones anyway. Yeah. Uh, just a very brief mention, actually. You know, we talk about Henry in 94. He played brilliantly again in 95. I mean, throughout the championship, mm. really. And, you know, hammered Peter Ebden in the final. Then beyond that, I mean, you think of 96, Henry and Higgins in the final. Still the last time Henry won it. Higgins had been well behind and he came back to lead. And then Henry, as he so often does, managed to show his best at the end. I remember when it went to the decider. It was 9 all, and they did the handshake. And for Higgins, this was a really big deal. It was the first time you know, he'd been in a situation by that, like that, a final frame decider to one of the biggest finals in the game. And I just remember there was a you know, huge cheer as the players shook hands at the end of it. And Higgins was sort of smiling a lot. And you could see he was aware what a big deal it was. And it seemed to sort of put him off his break-off shot, actually. And he didn't play a particularly good one. And that ultimately, in a sense, cost him the decider. So that, that, that would be my memory of that. In 96, uh, then you're, you go on to the following year, O'Sullivan and Henry played again and O'Sullivan beat Henry again. I think it was even by the same score. Um, and then I'm trying to think after that, there was Matthew Stevens getting to a couple of finals. He certainly should have won the one against Mark Williams. Well, I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about 98, actually, because, yeah. because I, this, I was the press officer yes. <laughs> at this one. Um, it was in Bournemouth, which was a great venue, the Bournemouth International Centre. Lovely part of the world, actually, down by the sea. Uh, big venue. They actually had two arenas, but it's not like York. You know, the second arena in York is has been described variously as a shed, a toilet, and various other things that are not very nice. But these were two, you know, big arenas. And because John Higgins had become world champion, he become world number one, and seemed like you said about Ronnie in two thousand and one. You know, seemed determined to sort of back that up, and in, and indeed did do. And at that point, I thought he would be the new Henry. I thought he would be the new dominant player who would because he didn't maybe have the sort of stuff going on in his private life that Ronnie did. He could maybe more consistent than Mark Williams. Um, I thought he would go on and on and on, um, you know, winning it and be the new dominant force. Now, of course, John Higgins has won plenty. Don't worry about that. He's won the UK three times, world four times. But it didn't quite happen like that. And I guess the reason is 
There were just too many other good players. I don't think there was any lack of effort on his part. Um, but interestingly about that, of course, he, he, he just made his first 147 in practice, I think, just before the UK Championship. Hadn't made one in practice until after he became world champion, which seems extraordinary. Um, of course, he's now made 11 in competition. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. At that time, it did look like he was going to be the dominant figure because it wasn't just winning the world in the UK. He'd been winning other tournaments, getting to the business end of them um, in, in other events as well. So he was very, very consistent around that time. But I agree, it was just the fact that there were too many other players. My memory of it is that his all-round game saw him through. I mean, Matthew Stevens had a really good chance actually to beat him in that final, even though you know it wasn't close in the end. But Higgins just really sort of took control of the match with his all-round game. And Stevens, you know, had obviously become a pretty heavy scorer at that time. And that, again, was an indication of how Higgins was going to stay a top player for a very long time. Uh, it was through that sort of all-round game that he was able to bring to bear in that final. It was also the year of Marcus Campbell 9, Stephen Hendry 0 mm. yeah. in, the, in the last 64. I mean, not televised, um, but... I mean, to lose 9-0, I mean, if Campbell had beaten him 9-4, that would have been an upset. But 9-0, that was, I guess, the wake-up call Stephen Hendry was looking for. Because, um, as you say, he lost his world title. He's lost world number one spot. He wasn't quite kind of winning tournaments as consistently. He did actually the next week win a tournament in Malta. But, you know, in terms of top-level events, he was struggling. Again, went to, I think, Frank Callan again, who we mentioned with Mountjoy. Um, sorted his game out, came back and won a seventh world title at the end of the season. So... It wasn't a crisis that lasted long, but I remember that very clearly uh, sitting in the press room, watch, just watching the live scoring. And at about 5-0, Phil, <laughs> Phil Yates, he looked up at the scoreboard, he said, this is gargantuan. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, for Phil, that's quite an understatement, yeah. really. He generally goes for something bigger than that, generally some statement involving Mussolini and Stalin or something. <laughs> but I, I, I was over uh, towards the end of the tournament, the TV stages. As you say, that was pre-TV. So on that night, actually, I was sitting at home watching Ireland playing Yugoslavia in Belgrade on television in the European Championship qualifier. And then I turned over to CFAX, you know, which I'm sure some of the younger listeners will have no idea what that was. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I put it on and I just I, I can still remember it now. So clearly seeing S. Henry nil M. Campbell eight. And just looking at it again and again, that has got to be a mistake. Mm. I'll refresh the page here. Uh, I remember Henry saying afterwards that, you know, had it been a case that it had all been played in one session, he would have been just unbearable afterwards. But he had actually resigned himself to it. He'd had a whole day to think about it. Um, the fact that, you know, he knew coming back for the for the final session on the Thursday night, there was no way he was going to win the match. As it turned out, he didn't win another frame. Interestingly, do you remember what he said he did on the afternoon while he was waiting to go back out for the second session? I don't remember. No, no. Well... He sat and watched a program called On Cue, presented right, by yeah. Phil, where they were showing, I think it was the 1988 UK final. And even though he lost it, or maybe it wasn't the 88 one, but it was one of the past UK finals. And Henry said, look, I knew I was coming back to lose this match tonight. I sat and watched this on television this afternoon. And it sort of reminded me of the way I used to play. And it's given me some thoughts as to how I'm going to turn this round, which, as you say, he did so spectacularly. Because, you know, people talk about him winning the world championship that season. And they mentioned the 9-0 defeat. And, it's almost as if he struggled the whole season. Actually, he didn't really at all. Coming up to Sheffield, his form was really good. He'd won the Irish Masters. He'd won the Scottish Open. But uh, yeah, we'll never forget that defeat against Marcus Campbell. And I think, to be honest, that will probably be remembered long after people can recall that John Higgs actually won the championship in 98. On cue was a nice little show. Phil and Steve mm. Davis, uh, just looking back at old moments, got huge figures, actually. Got, got yeah. 
couple of million viewers. Phil rocked a great sweater on it. Same one every same one every episode. There was no clothing budget. Uh, anyway, by the way, the BBC I can I can reveal I'm making a new documentary about uh, snooker in the 80s. So uh, look out for that. Presumably it'll be on before the World Championship. Uh, anyway, let's let's move forward to I mentioned it earlier, 2005. Of course, Ding had won the China Open in his home country. A massive moment for snooker. Uh, not just, you know, a great achievement for him, but what it started, it started the boom in China. And, of course, facing him in the final was the old master, Steve Davis, who had played fantastic snooker to get to the final. He'd beaten Mark Allen, he'd beaten Steve Maguire, Ken, Stephen Hendry in the semis, you know, just on a crest of a wave. And, of course, typical sort of hypocritical public, all the people who, you know, 20 years earlier couldn't wait for him to lose were desperate for him to win. But in the end... It was Dingu prevailed. But I think Steve was sort of the story of that tournament, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And he knocked out Stephen Maguire, who was uh, the defending champion, having won it so well the year before. And I remember he made a break. You might remember what it was. I think it was maybe 143. Mm. And I remember someone pointing out it was actually the highest break Steve had made in tournament play since his maximum mm. at the uh, Lada Classic in 82. But I always felt just going into that final that, you know, Dean was playing that bit better than him, and he wasn't going to be phased because he hadn't grown up with with Steve Davis at all. No. I mean, we, we mentioned there the fact that um, Davis won his last UK title in '87. That was the year Dean was born, so he didn't have that aura as far as Dean was concerned. Again, we're mentioning Phil a lot today, but I have to mention this because it is my abiding memory of that final. I asked him before the start, uh, "What's your prediction for the final, Phil?" And he said, 10-6 either way." Uh, I mean, what does that mean? That's not any kind of a prediction. Of course, he was right, wasn't he? Because it was 10-6 in the end. There you are, you see? Yeah, yeah, but come on. Anyway, um, but, you know, it it wasn't the only time that Steve sort of rolled back the years around that time because, of course, he'd been a couple of seasons before that in the Welsh final. So he was still capable even then of producing those really good inspired weeks. He's got a really good mindset around that time uh, that, you know, he knew his best days were behind him just wanted to keep competing, keep enjoying it and try to pick off the odd good results and the odd good week wherever he could. He certainly did that week. And it was one of those classic cases, a bit like the 2003 World Championship, I suppose, where people remember it far more for the runner up and the run he had to get there than for who actually won it. Well, of course, it's now 40 years since he won the UK. It was his first breakthrough, wasn't it? His first uh, professional success. And later that season became world champion and uh, the rest uh, really is snooker. Uh, let's go to 2006 then, which, of course, Peter Ebden was the champion, but yeah. it's the tournament, and you already sort of referenced it earlier, that's remembered for Ronnie walking out against Hendry, uh, 4-1 down. Um, and I, the reason I'm... Because what I commentated on. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. I, was thro- I was thrown in at the deep end a little bit. And, you know, you, you prepare for various things, various eventualities. That was not something that, that I saw coming, although... Immediately when it happened, I think you 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 know you understood what it was. He was just he just had enough basically. Um, and it's interesting he, he wrote in his book um, because there was a lot of talk at the time about you know we should have sympathy for him and you know and all this. He actually said in his book I just had enough and I went out in the afternoon got drunk with my friends. He was very very honest about it actually. And I think every snooker player who's ever played professionally actually would sympathise with the idea that you want to give up if things are going wrong. You want to give up. Of course most don't. In fact, you know. Pretty much none of those ever have just considered a match like that. Um, but I guess in the moment, he just sort of cracked. And you just knew there and then, once that happened, that he was going to win the Masters a few weeks later. Mm. Because it seems to be what he does when he's 
biggest controversies. He then goes out and wins the next tournament. And that ended up, and, you know, I know it's a different tournament, but we need to talk about it because it's part of the same story. That was the final where he played Ding, and it all got too much for Ding in the final. Yeah. And now there are varying accounts as to what happened at the end of the 12th frame. Did he genuinely think it was first to nine or did he want to concede the match? Nobody will ever really know, I think, the truth of that. But it was funny to see O'Sullivan then being the one putting his arm around his shoulder saying, let's go have a cup of tea. And sort of he talked him around and, and calmed him down. So it was a complete turnaround from a few weeks earlier. But yeah, really extraordinary thing. You know, in, in a sense, you look back now, something like that was almost bound to happen at some point in Ronnie's career when you know the struggles that he's had with, you know, his, in his head and everything. You, you just think something like that was going to happen at, at some stage. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Henry was playing really well at the time. Uh, I suspect he probably would have won that match anyway. Went on to get to the final, was probably fancy to beat it, uh, to beat Ebden and win it. But Ebden won it. And um, I think that was the last time Henry was, would have been in. Hmm. Sorry, going to have to say this, a triple crown final. You don't have, uh, to, say, you don't have to say it. I know, I know. I only said it to wind <laughs> you up. But it was the last time, shall we say, he was in the final the you know big old traditional mm, tournaments yeah. and uh, and of course henry was world number one at the time which mm. seems bizarre because he hadn't actually won anything for almost two years at that stage uh, but i remember that actually is a really good tournament all round. actually a lot of really good matches a lot of really good snooker being played and as we say probably the uk championship's biggest controversy well it's up there i mean alex higgins i suppose oh Hedbutt yeah indeed Hedbutt 10, Hedbutt 20 in, years before yeah Hedbutt paul hather or the tour yeah. director is probably up there but uh, yeah it was yeah you know a kind of thing is, if anyone else had done that, it would be possibly the thing you remember them for. But Ronnie's mm-hmm. career has been so packed on and off table, particularly on table, with, you know, great moments. It's just another thing, I guess, to add to the list. Uh, on and on we go. Uh, the next one I wanted to talk about, actually, was 2011, uh, which, of course, Judd Trump has now sort of made the breakthrough. He'd been world finalist. And his final with Mark Allen um, was exceptional. Uh, it really was a sort of feast of modern-day attacking snooker. Mark Allen himself was only young at the time. Um, made a great comeback from 8-3 down. Trump got the, the the match won. And that was kind of the first flowering of Trump, wasn't it? You know, he'd broken through. He was still young at the time. What, what was he, 22 at the time? Yeah. Uh, had a sort of period where he was winning the odd event, but not consistently. And, of course, now has blossomed into this, well, this great, just great winner. Yeah, I, there was a sense throughout that week, I think, that it might be his time. He beat No Sullivan on the way, of course, in a decider. Um, I remember that was the year, of course. And we said we wouldn't talk about it, but I'm only mention it in context. That was the first year that it was the matches were reduced from best of 17 to best of 11. And it was said that, oh, well, we'll get a result in every session. But I think the TV cut away in the <laughs> middle of the decider. Yeah. Uh, and then he went on from there. I mean, the semifinals were still best of 17. He beat Robertson in a you know, really close semi-final. But it just felt all through that week, particularly once he'd knocked out O'Sullivan, it just felt like it was going to be Trump's time. And, you know, it's frightening to look back now. Obviously, he's still very young now, certainly compared to us. But you look at the pictures of him from 2011, it's absolutely terrifying how much younger he looks. Uh, but it didn't really, in a way, lead to what we thought it was going to lead to because he'd had a great year. He'd won in China. He'd been in the world final, probably should have won it to win as many big events in the coming years as we thought he was going to. We're seeing it now, you know, you can certainly say that. But it, it wasn't sort of the start of lots and lots of tournament wins for him. It was, though, certainly the start of him being consistently one of the best players uh, for many years and obviously still, I think, the best player in the world now. Yeah, I mean, I, I've sort of been totting up, um, you know, the last few months, 
times where people have been, particularly about the World Championship, saying, for example, Neil Robertson is going to win more. People have said Ronnie might win seven or eight. People have said Karen Wilson will start winning it. They say Trump will win more. They can't all win every year. There's only yeah. one. A, there's only one a year. So a bit like I was saying with John Higgins earlier, you know, you sort of think, okay, they're going to win more, but these tournaments only come around once a year, and you've got to play well. And last year, for example, Trump lost to Nigel Bond, which was a massive upset. Um, you know, just a huge shock. I don't think anyone really saw coming. Uh, if you're not right that week, and it, and it can feed into, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, coming off the back of quite a tough week in the Northern Ireland Open straight into the next event, maybe, you know, a little bit jaded, possibly. I mean, you know, the, I, I'm not a great fan of talk of burnout, but there are times where you peak and there are times where you maybe fall away again. Um, he's only won it once so far. Um, that doesn't diminish anything else he's won. These tournaments are tough to win. And I personally am not a great fan of ranking them apart from the World Championship. But I guess, ultimately, in sort of legacy terms, if he doesn't win more UKs, more Masters, more World Championships, that will you know when you compare him to other players he will compare i suppose not as well that's just a fact and when you look at players like trump and others of his generation but particularly him because he's obviously the best of that generation i think a lot depends on how long this sort of class of 92 hang around still mm. winning tournaments i mean that's where the world championship becomes particularly interesting then and enters a whole new era is when those guys stop winning it who's going to be there to pick it up because they've never really gone away from winning it for very long i mean yeah. we've seen you know OK, it's a while now since Higgins won it, I suppose, but he's been knocking out a lot of players in the World Championship. Sullivan obviously won it this year and Williams just a couple of years ago. So in all the big events, what happens when those guys aren't winning anymore? Is Trump going to be the one to you know, really make hay from it and win you know, half of them or the majority of them? Or will it be shared around a lot more evenly? That's going to be you know, really fascinating. But it may be a while before we get to that stage. We do have to say, though, we talk about 2011. We skipped over 2010, which was one of the mm. great finals, wasn't it? Yeah. Because uh, Mark Williams, who, you know, had had a bit of a dip, but was going through a big resurgence at the time. Higgins had had a very troubled year, let's just say. Um, and then they were in the final and, you know, 9-5, Williams is leading. Looks like he's going to win the UK. But Higgins just came back and played so well, ended up winning 10-9. Towards the end, I think it was, was it the, the frame to get back to 9-8? I think he needed a snooker, didn't he? So that was a particularly memorable final. We've, we've really got to mention that one. And the last of the old style, where it's best of 17 all the way. Yeah, and of course, Higgins was coming back, wasn't he, from his ban? Uh, yeah, so that's maybe, what meant by a troubled year, yeah. Yeah, maybe had a point to prove. I remember, though, I remember clearly uh, when he was introduced for his first match and the crowd could not have been more receptive to him. So maybe that, he may have been uncertain how he'd be received, but maybe that, you know, from the off sort of gave him a, gave him a boost. Uh, you know, we've had wins for the Selbys, the Robertsons, Sean Murphy, you know, these great players, world champions. Of course, Ding again coming good a couple of times. As I say, it's, why do you think it is then that we don't seem to get shot winners? Because, you know, we, we really, if you look back, as I say, Mountjoy, it was surprising that he won it again, I guess, because he was seen to be fading down, but he, falling down. But he had won it before. He wasn't an unknown player. Why is it that this mm. tournament doesn't seem to produce them? Yeah, I don't know, really, because as you say, I mean, the World Championship has had more of them. Mm. I mean, you look back, you try to pick out players who have been surprising. Um, I mean, I suppose it was a bit of a surprise Stephen Maguire won it. Although, I mean, he'd been, as the kids would say nowadays, trending in that direction all through the year. <laughs> he'd won the European <laughs> Open. I think he'd been in the British Open final, hadn't he? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, he'd had, he'd had some other good results along the way. So 
you know, if that's the biggest surprise winner, then yeah, it underlines the point you're making. I guess, look, it is just a very hard tournament to win. I do think the players, you know, do seem to find that extra edge, the top players. They do have that little extra bit of motivation. For a lot of its history, as we say, the matches were longer, so it was you were more likely to have only the best players left in it in the later stages. But yeah, it is surprising, I suppose, that, you know, we've not had a, a Sean Murphy, who we'll say was number 48 when he won the World Championship. Graham Dott had never won a ranking event when he won the World Championship, and no one had ever really seen him as a potential world champion anyway. So yes, it is a bit surprising that we've we've not had it in the UK. You know, now that we've said it, someone's going to come through as a real surprise <laughs> this year. Well, I, I wanted to mention as well Jamie Burnett's 148, because mm. of course that was uh, in the qualifiers 2004 against Leo Fernandez, And, uh, you know... The highest break in professional snooker. I mean, it's not nothing, is it? But of course, he got nothing for it. That's that's one thing to mm. say. Got no sort of prize. They that's invited not true. It. That's definitely not true. He won Go the on. Snooker Writers Association uh, mm. Special Award that year for it. Like I say, he got like yeah. I say, he got nothing. He got nothing for it. He, yeah, he, he got invited to York because he, he didn't qualify. He got invited to watch other people. Uh, standard uh, standard train fare. And it was worked out the way they booked the tickets. He would basically would have been in York about 45 minutes to have to go home again. Um, well, but what was the at, point of it? What, what was he going to do in York? I don't know, but just get a sort of, you know, get a sort of the best wishes of people. But here's yeah. the interesting thing. I, I think we can reveal this now it's 16 years on. Alan Chamberlain was the referee uh, for the for the match where he got the 148. And he said at the end of the match, so at the end of the, yeah, the end of the frame possibly, the door opened and well, let's just say an official from the trauma office was stood there because they thought they were watching it on the screen. They thought Alan had basically, you know, got it wrong, had pressed the wrong button or something. They didn't think it was a one four eight. They oh, thought, right. he, you know, he'd given eight points for a black or something or whatever. And have a go at him essentially. But of course, he, you know, he was absolutely spot on. And it was uh, a great moment. We're still waiting on. We've had 16 red breaks on television, but over one four seven. I'm hoping if we get one, it will actually be 147 because then you'll have to explain to people why it's not a maximum. And, you know, that, that to, to the likes of us, that's great fun. We'll get a whole podcast out of it. They'll probably <laughs> talk about it on Have I Got News For You and have five minutes of knockabout. Yeah. The match went to a decider in the end, of course. Yeah. And uh, he got through in the end. But then I think it was Barry Hawkins, wasn't it? Knocked him out in the last round of qualifying. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was an extraordinary story that to make that 148. And I don't think it's actually that surprising that we've not seen any others because when you think about what needs to happen, you know, obviously, you've got to make basically a total clearance. Also, though, you've got to be snookered when there are 15 reds on the table. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm not sure it's all that surprising. We've seen other players come close. Kirk Stevens at the Yamaha yeah. many yeah. years ago was on for a, a 150. Mm. I mean, imagine that. Um, but it, it didn't happen. So, um, yeah, Mark, just, uh, Mark, great little Mark, moment in the game. Marco Fu made a one for eight in, in Hong Kong recently in a, in a practice uh, oh. match. was very proud of that. But, yeah, we're waiting to see it. Uh, I think we're sort of coming towards an end, unless you've got any other moments you want to mention. Well, the greatest moment in the history of the UK Championship was 1999, when you and I played each other on the practice table <laughs> yes. at, uh, at Bournemouth. We'd actually yeah. done that the previous year. I remember after the 98 final, we went and played on the practice table, mm. and we were being watched by Dennis Taylor and John Higgins, who just mm. won the final that night. But 99, I mean, you know, when people talk about the great matches between us, maybe we'll do a podcast about that someday. <laughs> I, don't maybe, think, I, don't, I don't think anybody's <laughs> talking about any great matches between us. But anyway, Maybe Nick and Phil could do it, actually, yeah, on their new yeah. podcast. But uh, 99, of course, you were hungry for revenge after the way mm. I humbled you in 98. But you were to be denied when I fluked the pink off about 17 cushions. Yeah. Then uh, pulled my jumper over my head and ran around the table in celebration. So, yeah, that's the greatest UK championship moment for sure. 
But uh, but actually, yeah, let's let's do that. Actually, what what's your all time favorite UK moment? Well, well, we'll well, we'll we'll get onto that in a minute. Well, I want to go right, back. Sorry. I want to go back to that match because right. <laughs> I've always said I don't mind a bad loser because losing is tough, particularly at the top level, and you can forgive people. What I don't like is a bad winner, and your yeah. your celebration in all the years I've watched sport was probably the most ungracious celebration. You literally ran around the table like Ravenelli with your, <laughs> with your teacher, with your jumper over your. You know, it's not good that, and it's not a good, not a good example to set to others. Well, I'm quite proud of that. You know, someone who's actually, you know, commentated on so much live sport over the last 15 years or whatever has picked me out as the ultimate example of something in all that time. <laughs> I'm actually very, very proud of that. So yeah. Anyway, come on, favorite UK moment. Favorite, favorite UK moment. Um, or just think, the greatest, whatever. Well, I think the greatest was Ronnie winning at the age of 17 just because it was an incredible thing, you know, youngest ever winner on the one of the biggest stages Snooker has to offer. Um, I suppose, I don't know, in terms of sort of more personal uh, memories, a very clear memory of watching Doug Mountjoy win. Um, that was, you know, you could see this sort of, maybe almost for the first time when you're sort of young, the emotion that goes with it's not just someone winning a tournament it's what it means in their life um and that was that came across very clearly um and in terms of sort of i guess more recently maybe commentating on it um i don't know i mean that trumballan i don't i don't think i did the final session of that but that was a great final um but the point is i think what we've established there's just been so many haven't there over the years but it's, yeah. it is it is still a great event despite the changes you know the uk championship has on its side its history its heritage the fact that we can, you know, track back all these moments over the years. I suppose the Davis Hendry nineteen ninety final that was thrilling because they were the top two players in the game, you know, going head to head, and it did seem to have a wider significance to just that one match. So that possibly that final is pro- probably the best ever UK final. Yeah, I, I'd probably pick that one out as well. Actually, is the ultimate UK moment. Um, I think for just sheer quality of performance, as we said, Hendry's performance in ninety four. You know, I'll always yeah. remember that. And he was just in his prime and, you know, just fantastic to see, even though, you know, it was my fellow Irishman get, getting beaten in that final. But, uh, yeah, I think you'd have to pick 1990 as as the ultimate UK moment. And, of course, you know, if we're talking about 31-frame UK finals that went the distance, we can't possibly finish this without mentioning the 83 final yeah. where Alex Higgins 7-0 down against uh, Steve Davis. And we know, you know, it's 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 a bit you know, built up in an, in, in, in an inaccurate way, I think, the uh, rivalry between those two, because they played about 30 times. I think Alex only won about four of them. But that, in a sense, made it even more of a story when he beat him in the 83 final, coming from 7-0 down. And a number of people maintain, I don't know how true it is or not, that that final was in Steve's head when he had a similar lead against Dennis only about 18 months later, and that that contributed to him letting it slip when Dennis started to come back at him. So uh, whether well, or not it, that's true, I don't know. Well, I think it must have been a factor, even subconsciously. You can't you can't just sort of uh, dismiss yeah. it. In- interestingly, though, the Rack Pack uh, film, the, essentially the Davis Higgins drive, we, the, the, it wasn't in it. The '83 UK final just didn't just didn't appear in it for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, that was a strange one, all right. I suppose maybe it didn't fit in with the narrative that yeah. you know, it was all about Steve beating Alex all the time. But yeah, I, I did find that strange that. It didn't get a mention along the way, but so many to choose from. I will pick 1990. I think, you know, okay. not, that that uh, you know the significance of it and the quality of it as well. I mean, no matter which two players have been in the final and what the context would have been, I mean, just the standard of it and the drama that there was. 
that alone made it a great final. And uh, perhaps even on that basis alone, it would be considered the greatest. OK, so finally, we're, we're recording this on day two of the tournament. My tip is Ronnie O'Sullivan. Who is your tip? To win the UK? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, O'Sullivan's record in it in the last few years has been been so good. Um, I just have a feeling for Selby, actually. Let's okay. go with Selby. Yeah. The strange thing is, and I didn't fancy Ronnie for the World Championship at all, but I actually mm. fancy him really strongly for some reason to win it. I don't know why, but anyway, you know, I've been wrong many times. We will see. Uh, as, as I say, no emails this week because we, we, we've got to devote it to the UK. Next week, we'll be recording actually quite soon, but next week, the emails we've had so far, we will read out. So if you send one after this podcast, you know, it may be the week after that. Um, because, uh, it, you know, we're going to be recording it before next week. Michael's commentating on the Moscone Cup for Sky. I'm commentating on the UK Championship of Eurosport, so we're quite busy with other things. But there will be one next week, and it will be consisting of uh, various comments about our sort of perfect snooker player. Um, we've had a few uh, more popular culture references, people getting back to us on that. And Dave Tyndall has started his... <laughs> I mean, what a sentence. But Dave Tindall has started his fantasy tournament that he's played on his own table featuring various people from popular culture based on the rules of the doubles event that Neil Folds put together. So if you're new to the podcast, that makes no sense. But next week, it will all explain itself. You can, of course, contact us by email, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. In the meantime, enjoy uh, the... Of course, the first four days are on Eurosport, BBC and Eurosport from Saturday. Got Friday, we've got a day off. What are we going to do with ourselves? I don't know. Uh, but maybe listen to this podcast if you're not already. But for now, that is it. Thank you for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.